0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate spoiler special on David Fincher's Gone Girl, his new adaptation of the best selling Gillian Flynn novel. And joining me for today's special are David Hagland, who is an editor at Slate and the editor of Browbeat, our culture blog. Hey, David. Hey, Dana. And from D.C., we have Dan Coyce, Slate's culture editor. That's what you are now, right?
0: That's what I am now. Hey, yeah. how are
1: you? How are you? Good. Okay, so I have to say that this is a case in which I'm actually relieved to be sitting here in this studio spoiling this movie, because not only is it a very interesting, in my opinion, pretty good movie that I'm happy to talk about with you guys, but it is a movie that cannot interestingly be talked about without multiple spoilers. So I happen to be stuck right at the part of my review where I can no longer analyze anything of interest, and I had to bring it in here and get it off my chest, and then I'll go home and find some way to take what we said and tiptoe around it and make it work in in written form. But... um, but, yeah, this one is is definitely extremely twist-based. I wanted to start off by seeing if we had all read the book, what we all thought of the book, and how we think we might have experienced the movie had we not read the book, which obviously many viewers will be in that position, best-selling as it was.
0: I have read the book. Um, we actually did an Audiobook Club podcast about it uh, in the in its peak summer of ubiquity two summers ago, Um, I really loved the book a lot and read it, uh, I mean, it just devoured it uh, uh, while simultaneously feeling as though it was having a creeping toxic effect on my life worldview and marriage. So I was pretty glad to get out of it at the end, Like because while I was reading it, it made me feel like uh, every moment of even minor strain in my marriage would end inevitably with some kind of horrible (laughs) joint hate society that I couldn't handle anymore.
1: You're reminding me how dark the book actually is. I mean, the movie is, in a way, because it's actually literally visually dark, and it provides, I don't know, the, the, the sleek surfaces that the book doesn't. I think of it as sort of a darker twist. But you're right. The book already really goes there in terms of its misanthropy and general bitterness the about book is, human nature. The book
0: is fucking grim. It is really grim. David, how about you? Have you read it? Well, so I've I've only read half
2: the book uh, because I was reading it uh, with my girlfriend aloud, and then one night, uh, you know, we would read it before bed, and then she decided she couldn't wait Longer, and she stayed up all night and read the rest of it. And I told her the next day, just tell me what happened.
1: Oh, the betrayal! <laughs> it suits the theme of the book. And
2: now seems like the sweetest uh, possible replication of the book's plot uh, <laughs> that one can imagine. <laughs> uh,
1: right up with the meat cute, you guys reading to each other in bed. That right. is too sweet. But,
2: but it maybe actually I'll just crack your head open and
0: see what plot. comes <laughs> like.
2: Yeah. But, it, you know, I was enjoying the the book up until that point. I would I w- happily read it with her. But I w- I wasn't so in love with it that I said, no, 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 don't tell me. I will finish it today or something. I was I was fine having it spoiled. But I did know what happened when I walked in the movie theater. So crucially, my experience of it was was shaped by that.
1: Right. Um, How about you, Dana? My experience with the book was that I read it fairly recently in the last eight months or so because I knew the movie was coming out and because I knew, you know, this was a case where so many people would have read the book that it was it was good to go in with that knowledge. But in a way now, I kind of wish I had gone in fresh because since this movie is so twist-based, there's sort of no way to know. It's it's, it's, a, it's a thought experiment whether or not you would experience it in the same way without knowing the twists that were coming. And I think it's possible that I've fleshed out some of the characters in my mind from the book and made them more interesting than they actually were on screen, especially the secondary characters. In general... Really enjoyed the book. Total page-turner for the first 100 pages. And I have to say that after the big reveal, which we'll get to, after the major twist in the center of the book, I, it lost a lot of energy for me and started to feel more like it was just acting out the various plot mechanisms it had set into place. I think the movie's more successful.
0: Interesting. Uh, the movie did not have nearly the effect on me that the book had, maybe because I you know, I knew the plot going in. I would really like to see this movie um, in an audience filled with average citizens, which is to say, I think in our immediate peer group, almost everyone has read this book. It was just the thing that everyone did. And it was a huge bestseller, a fabulous success by literary standards, but still, I bet the average movie-going audience, less than half of the people in that audience will have read the book. And, um, and I would be really interested to see where they gasp and how they respond and how people come out of this feeling about these characters, because I agree with you, Dana, that then not just minor characters, but major characters, and we should talk about this, I think come come off very differently when you don't really have access to their heads.
1: It's worth mentioning that Gillian Flynn wrote the screenplay. She was the sole author of the screenplay, and she was pretty faithful to her own book. So she had a lot more leeway than it seems like a novelist usually has to to get across the full vision of their book. And the, the, the curtailments she made in terms of compressing characters together and things like that were fairly minor.
2: Yeah, in yeah. fact, we ran a post on Browbeat. Uh, Aisha Harris wrote it. She uh, had just read the book, and she compared... The, the book and the movie and, and tried to enumerate the things that had been left out or changed. And it was a tricky post to write because the changes are actually fairly subtle. I mean, certain characters' roles are reduced and there are slight changes here and there, but it's nothing drastic.
1: What was your general overall reaction As just as far as, you know, positive, negative, excited to see it again as I was? I've actually seen it twice in one week now.
2: So I had a, a fairly specific reaction right when it ended, which was that I hated it. At that at, at that moment, and then, as I started talking about it with uh, with you and Aisha and Forrest, who were all at the screening, and then with uh, with my girlfriend when I got home and thinking about it, I, I it's
1: it stays with you. It right? It stays
2: with well, it stays with me, and also I just I enjoyed it. It was a, it, I actually I mean I enjoyed the experience of watching the movie. I would happily see it again. I think Fincher is interesting, although I don't really love any of his movies except for maybe one. Uh, but I you know I would happily recommend the movie but there are parts of it that really bothered me which i'm sure we'll get into
1: wait what's the finger movie that you love just before i forget to ask Do you want to guess uh.
0: <laughs> i guess it's zodiac you're right
1: hmm yeah. oh i should have. yes i remember <laughs> you talking very very fondly of zodiac well but don't you think that this movie in some ways has a lot in common with zodiac in that it's about a sort of crime investigation that spirals into much more than just a discussion of that crime i think that in in terms of its epistemological interest in crime, it's actually somewhat similar.
2: But I think it ultimately tries to be a movie about a relationship and even maybe a little bit about relationships in general and specifically marriage. And, and there is where I think it succeeds less.
0: Yeah. I don't think this is a movie about crime or even about investigation. The way Zodiac is, you know, I think that those two investigators in particular, uh, are much less vivid. They're vivid in the movie, and I really like those two performances, um, but they're not the characters that they are, even in the book. And even in the book, the course of that investigation and even the way that the various plots reveal themselves to you are not nearly as important, are not nearly the heart of the story, the way that corrupt relationship is, and the book's very blistering view of relationships in general are. But
1: I still think that it's a puzzle-like structure. I mean, it's true that the crime in question is more like a marriage, right? I mean, it's not its not necessarily the literal abduction or apparent abduction of Amy Dunn. But but I just mean that the way that there's a sort of a central unknowability that the story swirls around really put me in mind of, of Zodiac and what's kind of seductive about it. I, can, yeah, I guess you can see that end. I like this a lot more than you guys did.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, in the end... The mystery is not what's unknowable about this movie. The mystery is extremely knowable. No, in fact, it's the marriage that's not knowable, it. right? It's, right. The, it's the man and right. the
1: wife that, that aren't knowable. Okay, right. we, this is, we're off in the realms of abstraction here. This is great, but we have not gotten into plot detail one about the movie. So um, who wants to take it away first?
0: I'm on it. Ben Affleck plays Nick Dunn, a, uh, a magazine writer who's been laid off from his job in New York and moved out to Missouri with his beautiful, possibly unknowable wife, Amy. Um, when the movie opens, uh, Amy, uh, we see one last glimpse of Nick and Amy in their lovely, enormous, uh, monstrous, horrible Missouri home. And then he leaves for the day. And when he comes back, she is gone. And so the first half of the movie chronicles simultaneously the first few steps of the investigation into Amy's disappearance and the way that Nick misplays many of those steps and makes himself a the subject of investigation both by the police uh, and the object of suspicion to the public and also if the movie is done right to us, Um, while also telling the story through Amy's diary entries of how she and Nick met, excuse me, of how she and Nick met, of how their relationship developed, how they became the cute couple that everyone loves, and how that relationship then curdled, thanks mostly to economic problems, um, and led to them not getting along well at all, and Amy, in fact, fearing uh, for her life. Um, Then, at the climactic twist, uh, basically at the dead center of the movie, We discover that everything about Nick and Amy's relationship in the past that we've heard has been a story that Amy has been telling us, a diary she's been writing that we've been hearing in voiceover, and that a lot of it, we don't know exactly how much, is untrue, and that Amy has not been abducted, has not been killed by Nick, no matter what we might think. She has, in fact, left... Um, setting up an extremely elaborate frame job, which is meant to get Nick caught up in its web as retaliation for him cheating on her with a student. Um, And then the second half of the movie spins out that narrative, and the weird sociopathic relationship between the two of them as they play each other through the media and in person and eventually end up back in each other's arms, the only place that two such monsters could ever belong.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, nicely summarized, Dan. Impressive. Well, I mean, Thanks. I should say that Fincher did a really good job, not quite as good a job as you just did in that plot summary, but a very good job weaving together the, the flashbacks, right? The fake flashbacks, the true flashbacks, the uh, the different voices to, to tell the story that Dan just told. So we sometimes hear these, these flashbacks dire entries that we can assume that Amy was narrating in the past, right? That could be past Amy. She could be dead now for all we know, telling right. us those things. But at that moment of the big reveal you talk about, when we suddenly cut to Rosamund Pike as Amy driving her car down the freeway with a puncture wound in her arm that's bandaged, right? And we start to put together, wait, she's, she's faking her own death, or her own disappearance. At that moment in the car, the voiceover switches, and she's suddenly evilly telling us about her plot and her list of, of to-dos and how she, she carried off this whole faked disappearance. And so that's a really interesting, I think, deftly handled moment in which the narrator is suddenly speaking directly to us. It's somebody who hasn't talked directly to us before before but somehow in this multi-perspectival world that he's unfolding it makes sense.
0: Yeah, I okay, thought that. Okay, so oh, go ahead. Okay, no, oh, go ahead. Okay, so I have a question about that voiceover. You think it is definitely handled. That moment really bothered me, that switch for the flips the flip switch from the mechanical voiceover that represents the diary entries to the like present tense voiceover that represents this character talking directly to us the audience and telling us all about her evil plan. Uh I didn't buy that at all because that voiceover never comes back. We never hear that voiceover again. She never addresses us directly ever again. And so it felt like a a totally kludgy – uh, like, tool to, like, force the knowledge of what just happened in the movie into our heads.
1: But the diary I, never comes back again, right? No voiceover comes back again until the very, very last shot where we he, hear Ben Affleck almost like a bookend with the opening shot, right, of the right. woman's head. So, no,
0: no voiceover comes back so at all. So it but marks I just, a
1: shift in the movie. I mean, that seems that seems like a deliberate choice. It wasn't just a sloppy thing thrown in to patch up a hole.
0: But don't you think that that scene would have been even weirder and and crazier and more bizarre if... We just saw it, and maybe through flashbacks we are led to understand uh, what happened, but we don't actually have Amy sitting there telling us in Amy voice what how evil she is. Like, that just drove me insane that, like— it it just bothered me structurally from a screenwriting perspective. I, r- I recognize that it's meant to symbolize a shift, but the shift is already there. There's a temporal shift as we go back in time to the day of the disappearance. There's a point of view shift as suddenly we have live Amy right there in front of us. I didn't know that we also needed this voiceover explaining everything to us in like vivid, bitter detail. And then a voiceover that never appears again, when in fact, for much of the rest of the movie, we we really could have used more narration from Amy to give us more of a sense of what's going on inside her head throughout.
1: Yeah, I don't know how I would have felt about the prospect of more narration from Amy. I didn't feel the lack of it, but I could imagine it being used well. I guess, though, to me, that just marked, it was It was almost like chapter two of the movie is now beginning. I mean, obviously, the tone has shifted. The information we have has radically shifted. And the person who's telling the story seems like they would naturally shift as well. I don't know how else to defend it, except both times it sort of flowed smoothly for me. What about you, David?
2: Yeah, I'm with you, Dana. I, that, to me, is is maybe the high point of, of the movie. I, it's not only, I mean, the shift is conveyed in so many different ways. And so, as I recall, as it cuts to Amy on the highway, the camera is kind of you know, swooping down as she drives along. There's a lot of movement. It's suddenly much brighter, uh, and then you hear this voice come over. And even though I knew the the plot of the 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 movie already, having read some of the book, it still felt like this striking revelation. It reminded me uh, dimly of Vertigo, right, which has this major revelation about halfway through the movie. Uh, it it I think you're future- allowed to
0: spoil Vertigo. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, in I'll fact, well that's one of the things that I love about about Vertigo is that is that Hitchcock does spoil it halfway. through. You know, totally in that movie he didn't even have to. And he he spoils the mystery and I think that's partly why it's his best movie, but that's a separate discussion.
1: And Psycho basically does a similar thing. It's funny that you mentioned Hitchcock, just a tiny sidebar on Hitchcock. I walked out of this movie, I think I was saying this to Forrest as we walked out thinking about Hitchcock for some weird reason, and it wasn't at all that it was stylistically emulating Hitchcock. Forrest was talking about the blood going down the shower drain. That didn't particularly remind me of Psycho. It was more that Fincher's relationship to his audience was sort of Hitchcockian, you know, the calculating, cold, playful, whimsical, macabre, that side just seemed very Hitchcockian. Yeah.
2: And as for the voiceover, it it just worked for me. I'm, I'm intrigued by Dan, your suggestion that the scene could have worked even without it. And that would have I would love to see that. Uh, You know, I'm not certain that it would have worked as well, but it might have if you just got the same visuals and maybe there's a song playing or something during that scene, but you're watching her drive down the highway and you're seeing these little flashbacks that are explaining, because you don't actually need her to explain it. In fact, I think one of the reasons, or at least I suspect one of the reasons that... They used voiceover in that scene is because it also allows Amy to deliver her cool girl speech. Right, that's and that's the next thing I it.
1: wanted to get to. Okay, here, Haglund, here's where you're going to take it away.
2: So that, that gets... So this is a high point of the movie in, in some ways, that, that moment when the revelation happens, but also is this red flag for me, which is the way that that speech is adapted. Uh, she's explaining how she committed her crime and then she sort of segues into talking about this identity that she had taken on that she's now essentially Which in the book pitching. is a
1: good page and a half monologue that sort of, it was quoted at the time as sort of a standalone, you know, it's like taking Polonius's speech out of Hamlet and quoting it without any regard to who's saying it, right? So even though this, you know, kind of evil soulless villainess is saying it, it was really held up as a feminist manifesto, sort of. Can you kind of summarize the cool girl rant?
2: Sure. So the basic idea- is that the cool girl is a woman who seems to you know be everything a guy wants and and in the book um, Amy is careful to say that you know what 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 guys want varies you know some guys are vegetarians and love dogs and other guys are like into football and poker. Um, But basically, the cool girl is someone is a woman who adopts those tastes for herself, not because she loves them, but because, you know, she wants to be cool to guys. She also has to be hot. Amy emphasizes this. You know, she has to look hot according to the, you know, the beauty standards of most guys to like the things that they like and also crucially to never complain, to never get angry, to let the guys do whatever they want. That's why she's so cool. And and Amy says this is just a, a total put on. And a lot of you know enough women go along with it that guys think that this kind of person really exists, and that 's the kind of person she pretended to be she says for Nick, but now she 's not going to be that person anymore uh, and What frustrated me about the way it was adapted in the movie is that you know to my mind, the speech is really about the ways that women act around men and for men that that 's really the heart of the idea but the way Fincher shoots it, you're seeing her in the car and, you're, and she turns and looks at these women in other cars. And it's only women. There are no men in the cars. They're not women with men. They're women with each other. And, and so somehow she seems to be talking about them. And it, to me, it, it just visually, the way it came across was it seemed to be more a critique of women. Rather than a critique of you know patriarchal culture more
0: broadly, and I
2: thought something crucial was lost.
1: Yeah, those, well, that was so, a very odd choice to show no men whatsoever in that scene. Go ahead, Dan. What?
0: Well, and so that raises sort of the larger question, which we have danced around, and which many writers are going to dance around in writing about this movie. But um, it seems to me that the movie um, doesn't. suffers in many ways from what many David Fincher movies suffer from, which is that it is wildly obsessed with the interestingness of men and views women often as these sort of opaque mysteries that can never be sussed out and maybe aren't even worth sussing out. And so in some ways this movie plays into into those artistic impulses in the worst way, right? The main female character is, it turns out easy to write off as just a crazy psycho bitch from hell. Um, and it's not like there are that many other female characters in this movie to, to give a lot of depth to that and even
1: totally disagree. The sister and the female detective are good characters. Okay, The go
0: female on. so the female detective is a is an interesting character, but she is not like a real character. She says funny things and serves useful points in the plot. The sister is Mo uh, what Mo Mo is her name? No, no, no he, Go. C- he calls go, her Margo. Argo, from Argo. Go, He calls her Go. She, I think, is a great counterexample. How do you guys feel about her? She struck me as um as serving, as as not serving a, like a, really as the counterweight in the movie to um, Amy as she does in the book. In the book, she just really functions as like a grounding influence in Nick's life, and the connection that they have is basically his lifeline in in the years when his marriage to Amy is going completely toxic and bad, and then in the in the time after the disappearance, and. In the in the movie, I just got the sense of her as being much more just like, well, a helpmate to help Nick get through this thing as opposed to like an actual counterweight to the to the narrative things that Amy does in the book. But what did you guys think of her? So, Amy – so, Dana, you loved her.
1: Yeah, this may have been a case of me fleshing out the character from the book because I loved that relationship and that character in the book, the twins, and, and really liking that actress. Carrie Coons is her name? David, you were saying you just saw her in – she's in a TV show right yeah,
2: now? Yeah, she's on The Leftovers, and she's great on that very – problematic show.
1: <laughs> I haven't seen minute one of the leftovers, but she seems like a complete face to watch. She There's just something about her. She doesn't have a huge part, but I think she really puts a lot into that character. So I don't know. I mean, th- that relationship did feel grounding to me. It felt like probably the best fleshed out relationship in the movie, given that the husband-wife relationship at the center, we don't see them together that much. You know, we see more their fantasies and memories of each other.
2: Yeah, I tend to think that, that uh, Dan, you're selling... Uh, Margot, a little bit short. There, there's the moment, for instance, where she confronts her brother about the affair, which she has just stumbled in on. He's staying with her during all of the craziness, and then this very young woman that he's sleeping with comes over and spends the night, and she flips out. And you know, Dana, you might be fleshing her out somewhat, but I think we get enough of her that you know she's a feels like a real a real human being, and that's partly the performance. Uh, and she's not crazy. She's, um, you know, she is grounding, I think, to some extent in that way. To me, the problem was less in some ways the female character as it was uh, the way Affleck inhabited his role. Because even having only read half the book, maybe I'm imagining this, but my sense of it was that ultimately this is a marriage of two fairly horrible and very selfish people. And in the movie, it comes across as the marriage of one total nut job and a you know sort of decent if flawed guy and that that to me is is probably the movie's most significant flaw
1: i am not sure how decent he's meant to be i mean i would completely agree that her villainy is more over the top and she obviously is you know the one who could more be imagined as a as a marvel supervillain or something than he could but You know, the first and last line of the movies involve his fantasy of cracking her skull open, right? Um, And the climactic reunion involves him whispering, you fucking bitch, into her ear as she faints into his arms. One of my favorite moments of the movie. That's just when it becomes almost like a, you know, a war of the Sexes kind of domestic comedy. And it's just hilarious. Um, I don't know. I mean, I can't can't completely defend his performance. But as a non-fan of Affleck as an actor, definitely as an actor, (laughs) almost always underwhelmed by... I, I thought that he did a good job on this character. It's very different. He's not as bookish. You know, he's he's a real writer in the book and there's a lot of ego wrapped around his image of himself as a writer and that all sort of disappeared from the script and maybe a little bit because, you know, Affleck just doesn't seem that <laughs> mentally sharp necessarily. But, but a lack of mental acuity does go with this easily duped and, you know, poorly socialized husband character.
0: I don't know. I'm on David's side on this one. I feel like uh, the problem is, the problem is not that Ben Affleck necessarily, you know, doesn't do a good job playing an easily duped guy. But I don't think that Nick is meant to be an easily duped guy. I think he's meant to be an extremely sharp guy who nevertheless is fooled for some period of time.
1: Meant to be and, by the book as the character is seen. in as the, book, the character on the
0: book, And I think it's a more effective character if he is that way. And I also think that he legitimately is in the book a much, much more awful troubling Mm -hmm. dude with like deep-seated misogyny issues that are not really dealt with at all in the movie and part of that is i'm not sure exactly where it comes from part of it is that ben affleck is a genuinely likable dude and he does play him as a little bit doofy and a little less predatory um and even the stuff like the you know the girlfriend coming over for the night is played basically for comedy as like you know, oh he, oh he, she should really go. Oh, but now he's on her. She's on his lap. Oh, but she needs to go. Oh, but she took off her top like that. And so that scene is played for oh, this hapless guy can't even get this right. As opposed to in the book where it's really it's a reveal that makes you rethink completely mm-hmm. what you have thought about this character. And then over and over again, we get these glimpses in the book of this darkness inside of him. And I didn't ever really see that darkness in this character. Part of it also is that. I don't know what it is. Amy is like a true horror in the book. And I didn't even necessarily love Rosamund Pike's performance, but when you actually put that physical person doing these awful things who you actually see kill someone on a screen, it makes it a lot easier to root for anyone who is facing off against that monster. Right. Right? And so it's easy in the second half of the movie to cheer for Ben Affleck and Tyler Perry, who's great as his lawyer, uh, and that whole team to like you know, to to get back at her and escape her clutches. But the point of the book I always thought was that neither of them should or could ever escape from each other's clutches and cheering for either one of them is beside the point.
1: Ah, uh, see, I guess I don't think I, I cheered. I don't think I cheered at all. I think I felt like this this slowly turning screw and this sense of you know increasing sourness and not just misogyny but misanthropy. I mean, I'm not going to say that you know one covers for the other or they're the exact same thing or something, but I really did sort of feel with the Tyler Perry and the sister accepted. I mean, there was just everybody was scheming, everybody was out for something in that movie, and I, I don't think I was rooting for Ben. I think he kind of deserved the hell that he ended up in. But we have to talk about the uh, the big sex death gutter doogiehauser Doogie Hauser moment. <laughs> what do you guys have to say about it? It's just so it's one of the craziest sex slash death scenes I've seen in a movie in a long time.
2: It's really intense, right? The way that it's shot, there are lots of cuts and the music is really pounding and then suddenly there's all of this blood. Not
1: just cuts, but fades to black, right? Yes, Aren't the shots like individually isolated as these little vignettes and then there's a fade to black? It's
2: almost as though there's a strobe light on or something, a very slow strobe light. Uh, I thought it worked really well and it was kind of this you know, pounding scene and cinematically, and really it was
1: it was very, very effective. Would you agree, Dan? <laughs> I was in the bathroom. Oh no, <laughs> that was the worst part. It was like so. <laughs> That's gosh, the worst that scene. spoiler in this entire spoiler special. <laughs> so, it was
0: so it was like so. I got near that scene, and I really had to. Go, I really had to pee, and I was like, well, I want to. I want to be around <laughs> when she gets back, right? And but I badly calculated urine breaks. Right, so I was like, whatever, she's gonna kill Doogie Hauser, I don't care. And then I came back and I was watching I was at the screening with And there's a
1: film of sweat over everyone in the entire Well and I like and I
0: whispered to my wife, I was like, So did so she killed Doogie Hauser, right? And she goes, Jesus Christ, Dan.
2: Well, then you also didn't get to see the way that the blood squirted somehow magically so that it only goes up to her neck and then her face <laughs> is perfectly
0: clean.
1: Perfectly quaffed. Yeah. Yes, I love that. That's Actually, that is one of the moments where I felt like, are we in some kind of dream zone? And the single most unlikely thing in this movie, besides becoming a millionaire from writing a children's book, <laughs> is the moment when she leaves the hospital and is covered in fresh blood up to her Still neck. Still covered in blood. With a perfectly quaffed bob, like right above it.
2: But I, th- I thought that, that, that whole... Um, that whole section, because you know, she goes to stay with with this this guy, um, Desi, played by Neil Tra- Neil Patrick Harris, um, aka Doogie Hauser, who has this fancy house in the woods, secluded, so no one will find her. But he has cameras everywhere, and it very quickly becomes clear that he is basically trapping her, and she feels. Um, you know, threatened. He's trying to take her over and trying to exert this control over her, which is the last thing that that she wants to yield to anyone. Uh, So she stages this, you know, gruesome murder, which she plays off as as self-defense. Interestingly, interestingly, when I was talking about this scene with my girlfriend after seeing the movie, she said, well, you know, I mean, she was trapped. I mean, it is, you know, on some level kind of self-defense or an escape or something. So... Her reading was that, you know, as awful as Amy is, you know, I said, well, she's a murderer. And, and, and uh, my girlfriend said, well, murder. I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you see that sweet person who read you the story is not who you yeah. thought she was.
2: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, to my mind, this, is, this plays into exactly what you were saying, Dan, about the way when you see somebody do it. Right. Suddenly it's like she becomes this horrible monster. And it's
1: really a butchery. It's just a pure
2: butchery. And she also, I think, crucially, while she's there, in order to set up this, um, you know, her her tale that she's going to tell the police about what happened, she uh, makes it look uh, like she's been raped. Which, right. in terms of the reaction to this movie, I'm sure that will be a flashpoint because...
1: And it's not the only staged rape in the movie, right? There's also right. the one Scoot McNary, who plays her, one of her exes, pops up and tells us about.
2: Yeah, and we learn that she did the same thing there. So you have this central female character. One of her defining characteristics is that she tells people that she's been raped when she hasn't been, which is a fairly awful character to give to the world. But, you know...
0: On the other hand, she's also a psycho bitch from hell. So it's like it's not that hard... I think it's hard it's going to be hard for anyone to make the totally gross argument that this represents anything about about real human women at all, right? Like I don't know that anyone's going to be able to like seriously I'm sure someone will write this piece, but I don't think anyone will be able to successfully write a piece drawing a line between Amy and her uh faked rapes and any actual or pretend epidemic of fake rape in America. Like, I don't think you can make, draw that line very easily. And anyone who tries is going to be like laughed out of the room.
2: Yeah, no, she's not presented to us as a representative character. Right. And
1: she also does belong to, I think, an old archetype that granted, she's a very nasty modern twist on, but it's it's a film noir style femme fatale, you know? And I guess to me, in a way, the question becomes, I was thinking of Bound, that Gina Gershon movie where she's, you know, she plays this kind of like murderous lesbian in a way, that is a very negative characterization, but it's also kind of an awesome femme fatale. And I, I can also see kind of the empowerment in just the the, the unbridled um, just craziness of that character. I don't know. I mean, I, mean I, I feel like I'm betraying my sex by saying that this is maybe the second time that I'm taking a reactionary vis-a-vis feminism position talking to you, Dan, after our misandry conversation.
0: I know. Well, it's interesting, though. I do think that part of the... Part of the queasy appeal of this story, book and movie, is the way that it does get you at certain times on the side of repugnant characters, and then it twists the knife and curdles those characters even more until you feel gross about anything nice you might have felt about them. You feel a little bit bad for Ben Affleck when... When you know MSNBC turns on him and the fake Nancy Grace in this movie, who is hilarious, um, you know makes an makes an objective version of him nationwide. But then later, he just really is. A jerk, and then you're like, Oh, God, why did I ever feel sorry for this jerk? And I can totally see that part of the appeal of this story for women at first is the way that you can sort of feel like, Well, sure, she's crazy, but who hasn't thought of doing something like this? But then at the end, you can't be like, Oh, well, well I guess I haven't actually thought about doing all that. <laughs>
2: Right. And I think you're supposed to come in the movie, too. You know, I think you're supposed to reach this point where you feel like this was about the stories that I think Fincher has said something to this effect, the stories that we tell ourselves and the lies we we tell ourselves and these identities we create. Uh, for for others and for us, in which we pretend to be people that we're not, and 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 the way that that can you know become monstrous. Um, my you know my problem I've I've said already is that I I just feel like Affleck doesn't come across as someone who has uh, created an, uh, this this false identity for himself. Even though I think the movie does want us to see that you know the whole idea is that you know he's a writer, like you said. But they move back to Missouri where he's from and he goes back to being sort of, you know, not the New York sophisticate, but this kind of ordinary Missouri guy. And part of what Amy hates about living there is that she's lost you know, the kind of sophisticated guy that she married, and he's become someone else, and she doesn't like that guy. Right.
1: Well, that line is in the movie somewhere. I think it's from the book where she says, if, if you can't be the happiest, why not? Why be together at all? You know, I think, I mean, anyone who goes on Facebook can confirm that that is, you know, it's not only murderesses who have that fantasy of marital <laughs> perfection. <laughs> all right. This has been fascinating, but we're, we're almost out of time. Do you guys have anything else you want to talk about from the movie?
0: I just want to know from David, as someone who who did hate it walking out of that movie to start out and who has thought about it and written about it a lot since then, do you feel like this is a movie you're going to see again? And, and why, what do you think you are going to get out of it the second time through that you didn't get out of it the first? So I think I probably
2: will see it again, partly because I think this is going to be a pretty big movie. And I suspect that some of my friends will want to go see it, Uh, but I will happily join them because I'm, I'm curious whether that reaction, that visceral reaction was rooted in, in what Fincher had actually done or, or if it, said more about, you know, my own um, state of mind or something. You know, in in particular, you know, the whole Affleck character, I do think that the movie is trying to convey his own a serious, serious flaws. There's a moment at the very end where he pushes Amy into a wall, basically slams her head against the wall.
1: Reenacting the, the, the fake story that she made up about him earlier, right? Yeah, she lied right. that he pushed her and then we see him actually grow into that character.
2: You might even compare it to the moment in The Wolf of Wall Street when um, Leonardo DiCaprio's protagonist punches his wife in the stomach. I mean, you're supposed to realize this is a horrible guy. And I think the movie's trying to tell us that uh, for whatever reason... It, 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 that moment felt very jarring to me and was one of the reasons i was so bothered by it i
1: wonder yeah. if a different actor i didn't crave a different actor in particular i felt like he met the needs of that role and 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 f- kind of fit into it perfectly but i wonder if a different actor could have conveyed more menace and more complexity in that that push
2: i have two words ed norton Hen mm-hmm. Norton would have been perfect for this role I think hmm. he maybe would have felt like he was just doing things he's already done before in Primal Fear and elsewhere but I do think somebody who could have conveyed both these identities that he's supposed to have the kind of ordinary Joe and the New York sophisticate I think an actor who is a little bit more complex on screen I think Affleck seems like a very intelligent guy off screen but his screen presence is, is kind of like the big lug yeah. and I think that works against him here
0: I would watch that movie
2: for yeah. sure
1: Ed Norton, recast it, reshoot it, (laughs) reboot it. All right, you guys, this was... Gone Girl, the
2: reboot. (laughs) Yeah, five years. Yeah,
1: yeah. A dark, gritty one this time. (laughs) All right, thank you guys for spoiling Gone Girl. I think it's only the beginning of many conversations. I have the feeling that this this will be talked about for months to come.
2: Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Dana.
1: Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.